Well, Happy New Year. I'm sure we've got some New Year's resolutions out there. I know I've got a couple. I figured I'd share a couple with you here this morning. One of my New Year's resolutions is that I want to spend money a little bit better. I just want to get a little bit better at spending money. At the end of every month, my wife and I will sit down, pull up our bank statement, and we'll have a little budget meeting. Every month, man, I tell you what, it's like clockwork. The eating out line is just a little bit higher than we want it to be. And so every month, I'll look at my wife and I'll say, babe, you know, we've got to do a little bit better about eating out. Uh, we've, we've just got to keep that a little bit tighter. And with so much love in her heart, she'll look at me and she'll say, what do you mean we, right? And so sure enough, as we look through the bank statement, we see a charge that put us over the edge for Hardy's breakfast. And I'll tell you the truth, I really don't think that my wife has eaten at Hardy's a day in her lifetime. So guilty is charged. Um, I do want to spend money a little bit better. Another thing that I want to work on this year is I really want to work towards forgiveness in my own life. Um, I really... I really want to not hold so many grudges. And if you were here with us a few weeks ago when Pastor Sean was preaching, if you remember, he preached on these things, these people in his life, which he referred to as EGRs. That's extra grace required. And so he was saying, we've all got that person who requires extra grace in our lives. So what I want you to do right now, same thing we did the other week, picture that person in your mind, okay? Picture that person. Do you have that person in your mind? Does anybody not have that person in their mind? Because if you don't, you're probably on a lot of other people's minds right this very second. And so you've got an EGR in your life, right? Everybody's got one. And so what do you do when that person annoys you? Think about it. What do you do? How do you respond? How do you react when they start to annoy you? Or step it up a little bit. What if they actually hurt you? What if it's not just annoying? What if they actually hurt you in some way? How do you respond? Do you move towards forgiveness very quickly, or are you more inclined to resent that person? Do you harbor some bitterness in your heart when you do that? So think about it. Have you forgiven your spouse for when she embarrassed you in front of company the other week? Have you forgiven? <laughs> Have you forgiven the person who gossiped behind your back and you found out about it? Or have you forgiven your parents for the thing that they did to you all those years ago? Do you consistently bring it up? Do you bring it back up and hold it over their head? Or have you truly forgiven them from your heart? What I want us to leave here with today, one New Year's resolution I want all of us to leave here with today, is to experience more deeply the freedom of forgiveness. And so to do that today, to unpack that a little bit, we're going to be looking at Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. Um, this is known as the parable as the unforgiving servant. And to give a little bit of context, uh, in Matthew 18, we see a few things. The first thing we see is Jesus' instruction on how to handle conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ. And immediately after that, Peter asked Jesus the question, Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive our brother and sister in Christ? What's the number? Like seven? That's what Peter says. And Jesus responds, no, not seven, but 77 and that number 77 times is actually a euphemism to say there is no number of times to, that you're supposed to forgive and then you're done. See, Peter wanted a number. He wanted to meet his limit. He wanted to say, Jesus said, I had to do it this many times, and now I've checked that box so I don't have to forgive you anymore. What Jesus is actually saying is there is no number. You have to always forgive. And so he tells this parable to explain his point to Peter. And so what I'm going to do, 
I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us. I'm going to pray for us. And then right on the front, I'm going to give you all of the bullets for today. It'll be up on a uh, slide behind me, but I'll give you all of those. But first thing we're going to do is gonna, we're going to read the passage. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 23, it says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of that debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him only a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not have you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in 34 he says, In anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your Son, God, for the forgiveness that, um, that we have through him. For those of us who are in Christ, Lord, I thank you so much for the fact that we can walk in the freedom of forgiveness this morning. God, I pray that you would remind us of how much we've been forgiven and that you would allow that reminder to empower us to forgive others in the same way that we have been forgiven. We love you, we are grateful for you, and we worship your name this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so as promised, I'm going to pull up all of the points for this morning. The first one we're going to look at, we're going to look at the debt. Okay, that's number one. We're going to look at our misunderstanding of the debt, and then two sub-points under that one. How do you know that you're misunderstanding the debt? The first way you can know is when you become self-reliant. The second way you can know that you misunderstand the debt is that you fail to forgive others around you. Then we're going to move on to the cost of forgiveness. And lastly, we're going to look at the actual freedom of forgiveness. If we can leave that slide up behind me, you can go ahead and fill those in 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 your notes if you're taking notes. Uh, But I'm going to go ahead. We're going to start by looking at the debt. Okay. So in this parable, what we've seen so far is there is a king who's collecting debt. He's bringing the people before him who owe him money, and he's saying, it's time to pay. Your time has come. Pay me the money that you owe me. And what we see in the word is that this man owes him 10,000 talents. Okay. It doesn't tell us whether or not that's 10,000 talents of gold or 10,000 talents of silver or something else. And so because we don't know the actual unit of measure, there's a little bit of ambiguity when it comes to how much this would be in present day economy. Okay, so guesstimation. Most commentators fall somewhere between 20 million and six billion dollars. Okay. My wife and I are starting to look at houses, and because $6 billion only gets you about a 1,000-square-foot rancher out here, maybe a better way to look at it would be through the lens of time, and so I'm going to take another approach, okay? Some commentators have estimated that it would have taken this man 20 years 
to pay off that debt. Now, keeping with mortgage loans, right? A lot of you guys are probably like, I got a 30-year mortgage on my house, so 20 years, that's actually pretty good. That's not that bad, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that he took out a 20-year loan where he pays a whole lot of interest and a little bit of principal, and it takes him 20 years to pay it off. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about for 20 years, he would work every single day, and every dime that he made would go straight to the debt collector. Nothing for himself. So picture this in your own life, right? You wake up in the morning, you put on your shirt and tie, your hard hat, whatever you're doing. You go to work. You work hard all day. You work through lunch today, okay? Then you come home, and you get ready to sit down for dinner, but you can't afford dinner because all of the money that you earned that day had gone straight to the debt collector. And for 20 years, that happens. Let me ask you a question. How are you going to survive? How are you going to put food on the table for your family? The answer is you're not. You're going to starve to death because you don't have any money. And so the situation that we see here, the reason Jesus gives us such a large sum, he doesn't have to tell us if it's silver or gold. The point that he's making is that this debt is 100% unpayable. This man cannot and will not be able to pay back this debt. And so that's the point. The debt is unpayable. And so what would happen in ancient times? There's one of two things that would happen. The first thing is that the man who owed the debt would be thrown into prison until he can pay back the debt. If he's in prison, how can he pay back the debt? He sells his land, his assets, his property, anything that he has to put against the debt, he would sell it. And then at least he'd be out of jail. He might not have a house, but at least he wouldn't be in prison. In this situation, if this man had sold everything that he owned, it still wouldn't have been enough to pay off his debt in full. And so what would happen, as we see, is that he would be sold into slavery. The king essentially says, you have earned so much debt, you forced me to purchase you. So now that I own you, what I'm going to do is sell you into slavery so I can try to make back some of my money. Your family's not worth $6 billion, but at least I get some of my money back. And so what I'm trying to explain to you right now is that this man's accumulation of an unpayable debt actually resulted in his lifetime of slavery. So the first point I want us to understand this morning is that we possess a debt to God that is completely and totally unpayable in and of ourselves. We possess an unpayable debt. There was a book I had to read this past semester in my seminary class. It's called The Imputation of Adam's Sin. Uh, what does imputation mean? I know that's not something that we use on a day-to-day basis. It's actually a financial term. It's pretty commonly used with debt, so imputed debt. Literally, to impute something, it means to credit or ascribe something to a person. Okay? And so the book that I had to read explained that the thing that was imputed when it comes to Adam was his sinful human nature. Okay? If you don't know the story of Adam and Eve, this is essentially it. Uh, God creates Adam, and they exist in harmony in the Garden of Eden. Only commandment God gave was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Adam do? He eats, he breaks the commandment, uh, and therefore he earns himself a status of unholy, of unrighteous, of a sinner. He earns himself a sinful human nature. Now, because God is holy, that means he's set apart. That means that he cannot coexist with someone who is unholy, like Adam now is, that he has now earned himself this debt. And so what has to happen is that Adam is expelled from the Garden of Eden for his life. He can no longer dwell with God in the Garden of Eden. So in other words, what has happened is that Adam earned himself an unpayable debt, and the result of that debt is his lifetime of slavery to his sin. That's the story of Adam and Eve. And this book that I had to read explained the fact that when he did that, he did that as the representative head of humanity. 
Now, we don't have enough time to dive into all of that, but really simply, it means this. The same sinful human nature that Adam had when he ate from the tree, when he broke the commandment, every single one of us has the same thing. You have a sinful human nature, and I have a sinful human nature. There's all kinds of scripture references that support this claim. Probably the most clear is Romans 5.19, which says, By one man's act of disobedience, many were made sinners. In other words, by Adam's act of disobedience, we were all made sinners. It's called the doctrine of original sin. And usually, um, there's two kind of responses to this doctrine. The first is the people who would say, yeah, I just reject all that. Like, that's, that's just not true. It's not true for me, at least. And most of those people probably wouldn't call themselves a Christian. Um, but there is another response, and I think it's more common amongst churched people. Um, I think it goes a little something like, yeah, like, I know I'm a sinner, but it's really, you know, my sin's not all that bad, right? Like, I tell a little white lie every now and then, but I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. And so my sin is really, you know, it's, it's not all that bad. I'm a sinner, but I'm not all that bad. There's a book I read recently called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's one of his more popular books. Um, you kind of got to read it with a grain of salt. In fact, in his introduction, he says this is by no means any depiction, any accurate theological depiction of what heaven and hell is going to be like. So you have to read that with that understanding. But the whole premise of the book is that these people from hell get a one-day bus ticket to heaven. And so the whole book, all it does is basically explain conversations between people from hell and people from heaven. Again, this is not at all what heaven and hell is actually going to be like, but I think it sheds some pretty good light on how we view our sin. Listen to this conversation uh, that a man from hell has with a man from heaven. The man from he uh, hell, The man from hell is confused as to why he's in hell and the other guy's in heaven. This is what he says. He says, I don't understand. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was perfect, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from that. But I have done my best all my life. I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of guy I was. I never asked anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it, and I took my wages, and I did my job. That's the sort of guy I was, right? So he's obviously very aware of the fact that he's not perfect. He admits that. I'm not perfect. But all in all, I've done a pretty good job. I've never done anything that wrong. Listen to the response from the man from heaven. He says, that's not exactly true, you know. Man from hell says, what isn't true? Man from heaven's response is, you were not a decent man. You didn't do your best. But none of us did. None of us were. I think sometimes we can place a false hope in our own goodness. We can start to think that maybe if we're just good enough, we can somehow earn our righteousness. We can begin to pay back that debt that we've earned for ourselves if we just do good enough. But the foundation I want to lay for us this morning, if we want to understand this parable, and if we want to understand the gospel, the foundation that we have to have is that in and of ourselves, there is no hope. We have zero hope of earning our own righteousness by being good enough. There is no hope for that. We have to understand that we have no hope in and of ourselves. But the problem is, we really don't understand that. And if we do 
start to understand that. We don't understand it fully, and that leads me to my second point this morning, is that we misunderstand our debt. Okay? We have to understand that we misunderstand our debt. And when that happens, this parable gives a clear example of what happens when we begin to misunderstand our debt. Look at verse 26. The servant who owes 10,000 talents before the king, he falls on his knees imploring the king, have, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Does anyone else find it interesting that he didn't ask for mercy or forgiveness or graciousness or anything that would have gotten him out of the debt altogether? What did he ask for? Patience. Why did he ask for patience? It tells us in the last half of verse 26, because if you just give me a little bit more time, I'll pay back everything. He misunderstood his debt. He thought, you know, 20 years is a little tight, but if you give me 30, 35, maybe 40 max, right? If you just give me a little bit more time, I will pay back all of the money. The problem is he misunderstood his debt. He thought he had some chance of paying back his debt. He didn't rely on the mercy of the king. He relied on his own ability to pay back what he had earned for himself. And so that's the first way we can know that we misunderstand our sin debt to God this morning is when we become self-reliant. Okay? So think about it. When you uh, are faced by a problem that you didn't see coming, what's your typical response? How do you usually respond to that? I'll tell you how I usually respond. I usually say, I can fix it. Just give me a little bit of space. I can take care of it. And you know the worst thing that happens, the worst thing that can possibly happen when I start saying things like that is that I actually fix the problem, right? Because if I fix the small things in my life, I start to think that I can fix the bigger things in my life. And when it comes to sin, there is no fixing that in and of ourselves. And we've got to understand, understand that this morning. It's natural to want to try and fix the problem, but if you are trying in and of yourself, you've misunderstood your debt. And so I'm asking us this morning, don't fall in to the temptation. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that we can earn our own righteousness. Rely instead on the mercy of the king. All right, and so that's number one. If you find yourself consistently attempting to pay back your debt, uh, ask yourself the question, am I misunderstanding my debt? Now, I want to return to the context a little bit. If you remember in the beginning, I mentioned that this parable is being told so that Jesus can explain to Peter forgiving other people around him. And so what I want to do now is address something that's maybe a little more common in churches than we like to admit. We really are bad at forgiving other people around us. We are not good at it. I am not good at it as a, as a whole we're really not good at forgiving other people. And verses 20 through, 27 through 30 um, give us a really clear example of that, right? We see this man who owed 10,000 talents, it's forgiven, and then he immediately goes out and finds his brother who only owes him 100 denarii, and he actually chokes him, and he throws him in jail until he can pay it back. So that's a really clear example. But before we jump into that, before we unpack that section, I want to approach something uh, a little further ahead that we see in the message, I want to approach the fact that there are real consequences to unforgiveness. There are real consequences to unforgiveness. So starting in verse 32, listen to this. His master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers 
until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Verse 35 just said that if I don't forgive other people, God's not going to forgive me. Now, the first time that I read that, I had just spent all this time on this debt, this unpayable debt that we possess, and there's no hope, right? We spent all this time on the unpayable debt. And then we get to this verse, and it almost looks like Jesus is telling us the only thing you have to do to earn your righteousness is just forgive other people around you. That's all. And then you'll be forgiven. And that seemed to, to be a a conflict to me. And so what I started to do was go back through Matthew alone and see where other places are kind of confusing in the same way. So Matthew 5, 7, let's take that for example. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What if I'm not very good at being merciful? What if that's something that I really struggle with? What if I'm not always the most merciful person? Does that mean that I'm not going to receive mercy from God? Or how about Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15? That one's very applicable. It's basically the same passage as today. It says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what's happening here? What is Jesus trying to tell us? He's not approaching works righteousness. Instead, what he's approaching is what's called spiritual fruit. And I know I'm jumping around in Matthew here, but stick with me. In seven, Matthew 7, starting in verse 17, he explains his view of spiritual fruit. He says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What Jesus is telling us is that good fruit is a sign of your having been saved. It's a sign of the uh, forgiveness of Christ that has impacted and changed your life. Then you will produce good fruit. John Piper puts it this way in regards to this passage in Matthew 7. He says, a good tree bears good fruit. If you have fruit, you are a good tree, not the other way around. We're not saved by our good fruit. It's the good fruit that shows that we're a good tree of faith in Jesus. We've got to have that right. We've got to have that in the right order. It's not the fruit that saves us. It's the salvation that results in spiritual fruit. Now, that's how he explains good fruit. But listen to how he explains bad fruit. This is another quote from Piper. If the forgiveness that we have received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our own hearts that we're bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against someone, we are not a good tree. We are not saved. So, when I came to Christ in college, the first thing that I did, right, I started analyzing my fruit. And there was a whole lot of bad fruit in my life. There was a lot of bad fruit in my life at that time. And that brought me to a place after having read some verses like this and almost kind of misunderstanding them. It brought me to a place where I would ask the question, man, am I even really saved? I would ask Jesus stuff like, you know, Jesus, are you even really working in my life? Like what Aren't, aren't these things supposed to be going away now that I'm a Christian? That's a really, really dark and dangerous place to be. That was a dark time in my life, and so I want to be very clear about my goal in explaining these uh, passages. It's not to get you out of here today questioning your salvation. That is not at all my goal. I wouldn't wish that on any one of you. However, 
I do want you to ask yourself the question, why are you failing to forgive the people around you? What is the cause? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that we spent so much time explaining the debt for you. If you're not a Christian, I really want to drive home the point that you currently possess a debt and it remains unpaid. And until you confess to Christ your need for him, until you confess that he is God, you will not be able to forgive your brother from your heart and you, your debt will remain unpaid. And so this morning, if you're not a Christian, I'm asking you, ask Christ into your life. Confess your need for him. Confess that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Now, same question to the Christians in the room. Why are you failing to forgive people? Have you forgotten how much you've been forgiven? Have you forgotten the deepest, darkest valley in your life where your sin is towering over you? And have you forgotten the fact that Jesus Christ took your place in that valley? He took your sin upon himself. The word says that he became a curse for us so that we could be called redeemed, that we could be called forgiven, and that we could be called children of God. And so what I'm asking for you today, Christian, is... Be reminded of what you've been forgiven and forgive others as you have been forgiven yourself. Now, I could stop right here and a lot of us would probably be like, oh, it's, okay, it's just that easy. We're done. That's it. No, it's, it's actually not that easy. Even after remembering how much you've been forgiven, forgiveness is really, really difficult. It's not an easy thing to accomplish. And I feel like there's a bunch of reasons for that, but every reason that I could think of all boils down to this. You ready? Forgiveness costs you something. Forgiveness costs you something. That's the third point this morning, that there is a cost for forgiveness. Now, depending on the situation you find yourself in, uh, it costs you different things. Okay, so for example, if you're asking for forgiveness, it costs you your ability to say, I'm right and you're wrong. If you're asking for someone's forgiveness, you have to admit, I've done something wrong and I need you to forgive me. So it costs you your pride. If you're the one asking for forgiveness, it costs you your pride. And I feel like a lot of us, including myself, we're really not very eager to pay the price of pride when it comes to forgiveness. And so that's one way. But what about if, if the situation is reversed? What about if you're the person that's actually offering the forgiveness here? I'll tell you a quick story uh, to explain my point. When I was in college, I really, really wanted a motorcycle, right? And so in the span of 24 hours... Okay, 24 hours, I went to a community college and took the written exam and then hopped on a little dirt bike and did the, the test. And then in 24 hours, uh, I was legal to be on the road on a motorcycle. If that doesn't scare you, that should really scare you. I'm not talking about a car. I'm talking about a little tiny dirt bike on 64. 20, okay, whatever. 24 hours it took me. And so what do you do when you're in college and you just got your motorcycle license, right? You hop on Craigslist and you find the first one you can buy. And so me and my dad found one on Craigslist, and we drive up to this guy. I'm living in Roanoke at this time. Uh, we drive up to this guy's house. We look it up and down, and he goes, you know, hey, you want to take it for a test drive? Yeah, I want to take it for a test drive. Give me the keys to that thing, right? So I hop on it, and off I go. I'm doing this little test drive. couple pertinent pieces of information. First thing, I don't know if I've mentioned this. It took me 24 hours to get my motorcycle license, okay? So I am not at all an experienced motorcyclist at this point in time. The second thing is that this is the first time I've ever been on a street motorcycle, okay? And so the difference between a dirt bike, which is what I took the test on to get my license, and the street motorcycle, <clears throat> excuse me, and the street motorcycle is that the dirt bike 
weighs about 200 pounds. This motorcycle that I was on weighs 650 pounds. That's a difference, okay? Third pertinent piece of information, I'm still in Roanoke, and this guy's house was on the side of a mountain up a one-lane road doing twists and turns. So I've set the tone for you. I feel like we all know where this is going, right? I'm here on this test drive, probably going a little faster than I should be, and one of the things they teach you how to do in the training, training course uh, is to do a one-lane U-turn, right? And on a dirt bike, it's not that hard. It's a 200-pound thing, so you can kind of stick your leg down and cut to the left, and it's not that hard. If you remember, I, 24 hours, 650-pound dirt bike, windy Roanoke up a mountain road, right? So by the time I get done, by the time I'm ready to, like, turn around and go talk to this guy about maybe buying the motorcycle, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do the same thing I did in this test. I'm going to do a one-lane U-turn. Probably going a little too fast. I cut real hard left. The added weight of the motorcycle kept going right. I went off the top. Motorcycle hits the ground, slides into a ditch, right? I was fine. I wasn't going that fast. I kind of like to tell the story like I'm James Bond, but really it probably looked more like a, like a toddler falling off a tricycle than it did anything else. <laughs> I was fine, but the bike was not, right? When I got it out of the ditch, the headlight was hanging down and the paint job was all scuffed up and the muffler was kind of bent and hanging. And remember, this is a test drive, okay? And so I pull back into this guy's driveway and I look at him in the face and I say, sir, I am so sorry. I wrecked your motorcycle. What's forgiveness, right? What is forgiveness? What's true forgiveness? Forgiveness is for this guy to look me in the face and say, I forgive you, you're free to go. I forgive you and you're free to go. The motorcycle didn't fix itself, right? When he forgives me for that, there is a cost that was incurred by my having wrecked the motorcycle, right? Like there's a price that has to be paid to get the motorcycle back to working order. But true forgiveness is this man saying, you have accumulated a debt to me, but instead of me forcing you to pay that debt, I'm going to pay it for you because I forgive you. True forgiveness is when you yourself pay the debt that someone else has accumulated towards you. That's what true forgiveness is. Now, to end the story, I bought the motorcycle. I paid for it. He didn't do that. Now, the thing is, though, outside of the context of this sermon, if I hadn't just spent all this time on forgiveness, and if I would have just told you this story in passing, would you have been inclined to be like, man, that was kind of wrong of that guy. I wish he would have forgiven you. Probably not, right? Probably not. I incurred a debt, and you probably would have been like, yeah, you big dummy, you got to pay him. Like, you broke the motorcycle. And so the situation that we're faced with here is that culture tells us not take someone else's debt upon yourself. Culture tells you get what you're owed by any means necessary. Culture says pay what you owe, right? And we all fall victim to that. I think all of us probably take a more culture view when it comes to forgiveness than we do a biblical view. And so if you, like me, find yourself kind of struggling with forgiveness from time to time, for that reason, I want to direct you back to verse 28. Uh, Verse 28 says that when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii was one day's labor, okay? So a hundred denarii was a hundred days worth of labor. And so that by no means is a small amount. That's kind of a lot of money, actually. But do you know what 100 denarii comes out to in respect to 10,000 talents? 
1%. It's 1% of what he had just been forgiven. And so if you're struggling to forgive someone in this room this morning, because you're saying things like, you just don't know how bad he's hurt me. He truly hurt me. I'm not trying to take away from the fact that he hurt you. You might have seriously been wrong. They might have seriously done something against you, and you might be really hurt. But do you know that the hurt that you feel because of their sin is only a fraction of the hurt that Christ feels because of yours? That's what Jesus is telling us in this parable. Or maybe you're in another situation where this person continually, unrepentantly is sinning against you. If that's the case... There is wisdom in how you handle uh, that situation. As I mentioned, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, gives us instruction on how we're supposed to handle disputes between believers, right? The first thing we do is approach the person one-on-one. We have a conversation. We man up, and we have a conversation with that person. If they remain unrepentant, after that, we bring a group of people with us to confront them about their sin. And if they remain unrepentant, after that, uh, we bring it to the whole church. I think a lot of us know that and probably have heard that before, but how many of us, right, when somebody annoys you, what's easier, to go and to have a conversation with them and work towards forgiveness or to just be like, forget it, I don't care, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to work towards forgiveness in my heart, I'm just going to shut them out, I'm not going to talk to them, I'm I'm just, I'm done, like I'm just, I'm done with this person, I I don't want to deal with it anymore, right, that's easier, that's easier, and I think we all do that, but do you know, what you're actually saying when you say things like that. That person's sanctification is not worth it to me. I don't care about them. I only care about me. And so I'm not going to waste my time on them because they've done it over and over again. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm done. This is where I've drawn the line. This is the last time that they've hurt me. If that's what you're saying, if that's why you're struggling to forgive somebody, can I ask you a question? Aren't you glad that when Jesus was with his disciples about to be arrested by Roman soldiers that he didn't say, this is where I draw the line. And when he was being tried before Pilate for having done nothing wrong, aren't you glad that he didn't say, these people have embarrassed me one too many times and this is it. Or when he was being crucified on a cross, aren't you glad that he didn't say, this hurts too much, they've hurt me one too many times, and I'm done. He didn't say that on the cross. What did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them. So if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, I want you to know you have been forgiven for your sinful human nature that we all possess. You no longer must live in slavery to your sin. Instead, you can experience forgiveness and therefore freedom in Christ. And that's why this morning, I want our New Year's resolution, all of us at the very top of our list, I want our New Year's resolution to be experienced more deeply, the freedom that comes from walking in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. There is one other kind of freedom um, that I want to share with you this morning, and I'll close with this. Band, you guys can come on back up. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor, or was a pastor in New York, but before he was in New York, he was a pastor in Virginia, and one of the things he would do to evangelize the people in his neighborhood is they did VBS, and he would invite just the kid to VBS, right? Just the kids in the house to VBS. He would go door to door, and he would say, hey, uh, you know, parents don't have to come, but hey, bring your kids, man. It's a week free of child care. And actually, a lot of people ended up coming to the church um, because of that. So it was a great tool that he used, but he does tell this story about one man who he had come across who just blatantly said, I won't let my kids go to that, even if they want to go, I won't let them. 
course, Keller says, why? You know, what? Why, on, why in the world would you not let them do that? And he says, because my father, when I was a kid, forced us to do stuff like that, and I hated him for it. I've never forgiven him for that. So you see what he's doing, right? He's trying to be free from the oppression of his father by being the exact opposite of his father, by not forgiving his father. But do you know what his, his unforgiveness of his father did? It turned him into the same thing. He was oppressing his kids the same way his father was oppressing him, whether he realized it or not. That's the result of unforgiveness. So if you're here this morning, if you're thinking, you know, I am liberated from this person who has just been annoying me so much. If you're thinking that, I want to encourage you, you're not as free as you think you are. I don't know how it'll come back up in your life, but I know that it will. And so this morning, I want today to be the day. Lay aside the weight of your own unforgiveness and forgive as you have been forgiven. I'm going to give us three practical takeaways on how we can take steps towards that this morning, and then I'll close. First thing is we need to pray and we need to ask the Lord for help. We need to ask him to change our hearts, and we also need to pray for the person who we're trying to forgive. Number one is prayer. Number one on the list is prayer. Number two is the first step in Matthew 18. Have the conversation. If there's somebody in your life who you haven't forgiven and you haven't talked to them, if you haven't had that conversation with them, today is the day. Nothing is stopping you from having that conversation. If they're not here, call them. Today is the day. And the last thing is maybe you feel like you need a little bit of help in navigating that conflict. Coastal has a biblical counseling program. And so if you do need help, if you feel like that's a step that you need to take uh, in order to navigate that conflict, find one of the staff members after today. Find me. I'd love to get you plugged in with them. Um, but ultimately, there's one thing when it comes to forgiveness. It's Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is found in Christ. It's forgiveness of your debt as well as empowerment to forgive others of theirs. And so this morning... I want this to be the year where we forgive as we have been forgiven and we walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning how much we've been forgiven, a debt, Lord, that we've accumulated, that we have no chance, no opportunity of paying back. In and of ourselves, God, we have no power to repay the debt that we have earned, but praise be to God for Jesus Christ, who took our debt upon himself on the cross, who gave us an opportunity to be called children of God, to be called redeemed, to be called forgiven. God, thank you for the freedom that comes from walking in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. For those who are not Christians this morning in the room, God, I pray that you would reveal to them just how enslaved they are to their own sin. I pray that you would reveal the truth that is the message of the gospel, the forgiveness that comes with it, and the freedom that comes from walking in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We are grateful for this morning, and we pray that your name would be glorified above all else. We love you, and we praise you, and pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.